Welcome, everybody, to Dad Talk Live. I'm your host, Viz, and it is my honor and pleasure tonight to welcome our very special guest, Russell Todd, who most of us know from Friday the 13th, Part 2, as the character of Scott, who... Did you know that you were Jason's first machete kill? Uh, actually, I never did realize that. Yeah. That's funny. Now yeah. That you say that. Yes, that, that's very true. You are. Yeah. You became Jason Voorhees' first machete kill, which we all know became his signature weapon all the way up into space. And we'll get to. <laughs> we'll address <laughs> that later on. Now let's go back to the beginning. In the, you starred in a movie called uh, He Knows You're Alone in 1980, which also had Tom Hanks in that. And that is where you sort of met Steve Miner. So can you, Steve Miner directed Friday the 13th Part 2. So can you walk us through that whole process that uh, ended up landing you the role of Scott in Friday the 13th Part 2? Sure. Well, I, as you said, exactly. I was doing this movie called He Knows You're Alone. Um, and I'm only in the opening scene of it, and Tom Hanks is in the movie, and, and he's one of the stars of it. Um, but it just coincidentally, I get killed the exact same way. I'm hanging upside down, and he knows you're alone, and my throat gets slit. Oh, God. Which is, so you don't see the actual slitting of the throat, but when this girl comes out of the car, we've been making out in the car, when she comes out and she looks above the car, she sees me hanging there upside down in the blood. And so it's very funny. But... Steve Miner had nothing to do, as you know, with that film. I'm not even sure if he saw it. It just, coincidentally, the killings are the same. I went, um, I was reading, uh, you know the publication Backstage? Yes. It's a newspaper with auditions Mm -hmm. and information for actors. And um, I was going through that, and I saw the audition for Friday the 13th Part 2. And... I had an agent at the time, but I think I just went on it myself and I, I just called them up and I submitted a, a photo and I was brought in because I had seen the first like you had and I thought it was a terrific, terrific horror film and I thought it'd be very cool to be part of the sequel. Um, and I got called in. Um, I don't really remember much about the audition. I remember reading for the casting director and Steve and, uh, you know, them nodding their heads like, yeah, look, you know, sounds good. You, you, you seem to fit the part well. And I went home, but you know, like every actor, you do those things and you, and you usually think, nah, not going to happen. And if it went well, that's really when it never happens. <laughs> you know, it's the ones you don't think you're going to get that somehow uh, turn out. But I got the call, you know, a few days later. And soon after that, we were on a bus heading up to Kent, Connecticut, where we shot it at, at a camp up there on a lake. And, um, and it was it was amazing. That's a great story. Now let's talk about the timelines here for a second. Uh, the original came out in 1980, and it was a huge success. Yes. Uh, the sequel, which came out 1981, was very quick uh, to come out. Only a year after the original. Uh, was that normal for back in those days for sequels? to come out that soon after the original. Nowadays, it may take several years to get a sequel out and done. But yeah, was that's that normal true. back then? Yeah, I, I don't know if it was normal back then, but in this case, it was it was kind of odd. I mean, I, they knew they had a hit, and they wanted to cash in and, on it as soon as possible, so Paramount gave it the green light. And, and you know, quite often with a sequel... The script is what takes the time. They don't approve of that script, so it could take a while because they figure, you know, we're just rushing, you know, we want to be sure it's good. But they wrote the script, which is pretty good, and um, 
and they Paramount approved it right away. So they funded it, they greenlit it, and uh, and off it went. But I think you're 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 very accurate. Most sequels, as we know, you know, take a long time till we see them hit the screen. Exactly, and I guess I, I don't know if it's just a lot more politics involved today, but who knows? Now, uh, you having watched the original. Did you get that script for the second one? And you're like, oh, yeah, this is going to be good to bring in the son. That was the motivation for the killings in the first movie. What were your initial thoughts of the script when you actually read it? Well, first, again, I was very excited because the first one was such a big hit. And, uh, and it was a Paramount movie. And I thought this would be great to be a, you know, work on this and be attached to it. And I liked the script a lot. I, I wish my character would have lived a little longer. <laughs> <laughs> like maybe to the end, but uh, and been the hero. But um, I just thought, you know, he had some great scenes. I liked his I liked the character and the way he was written. Um, I didn't know Steve Miner. Um, I didn't know any of the other actors. Uh, so it was just, you know, totally new to me uh, to be with this group of people. But um, after reading it, I was just really, you know, excited about about being part of it. Uh, did you like the way they took it with uh, bringing back the son that the mother thought was dead and him avenging his mother and that being his motivation for killing all the counselors as it was the case back in uh, a lot of the movies back in the 80s, slasher flicks and so on? Yeah, I mean, I think it worked. People seem to respond to it. You know, I, I still get it's incredible. I mean, the Friday the 13th fans and, and horror fans in general, but what I know is Friday the 13th fans are, are just amazing. Their, their connection to this franchise. And then, so, you know, they, I still get, and I'm bringing that up because they still write me and sometimes I still get noticed from that, but they, many of them say it was their favorite one out mm-hmm. of the franchise, which is great. Yeah. So I guess, you know, the script did work and the choices were, were well made. Now you got uh, awesome death in the movie. Okay? <laughs> you get caught in that trap. You're hanging. Uh, the the girl goes out to find help. The next thing you know, a hand grabs you by the hair, pulls your head back, and before you know it, your throat is slit uh, with the machete. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what was the pro? Were you? Was that uh, physically exhausting, taxing? Were you hanging upside down? Walk us through the filming of that scene. Okay, so first I had to be cast. My my throat was cast with foam latex. I took a mold, and then it was cast by actually a friend I grew up with. His name is John Caglione Jr., who became a very famous Academy Award-winning makeup artist. Wow! And uh, he did that casting. Um, and then that day, um, and it was actually the last day of my shooting. And that's another story, but. I don't, I don't know if I can, I'll just tell you real quickly that it was the last day of shooting. I remember calling my parents in Albany, New York and saying, you know, it's my last day. It's my death scene. And they said, Russell, wait a minute. Why did they wait to your last day to kill you? Is this a snuff movie? Are you sure you're okay? <laughs> I said, mom, dad, it's Paramount. It's a sequel to, you know, this big movie. I'm sure it's okay. Just, just be careful. Be careful. But, uh, <laughs> So they cast me and uh, about four hours before the actual shot, I was put into the makeup and they blended it. And I had a tube running from uh, just beneath the slit and it was pre-cut. And you can't see that because I keep my head down. Um, And it was running down my side and down my pant uh, and out by my ankle. And I am, uh, and that was the tubing. And I would then go to the set 
and they they put me on a ladder so I could get up to where the tree where the rope was um, and they connected my feet and then they had some guys like hold me so I would come down and be hanging upside mm -hmm. down and then there was a guy up in the tree who connected the tubing to a pump you know mm -hmm. that held blood in it and um, and they were like holding my my back up so I wasn't totally you know vertical so you know, well the blood wasn't rushing to my head uh, so it wasn't really difficult as far as the positioning um, but you know you are upside down for I think the whole thing took maybe 30 40 minutes to do it um, but we wanted to get it in one take because of you know the blood running mm -hmm. we had to change of clothing in case there was a problem with the camera or with me um, but it was it was a little nerve-wracking knowing that they wanted it in one take and I thought well what's my you know you just try to do what you feel is natural for the reaction although none of us really know what that's like thank God uh, but uh, you have to pretend um, and then the camera started and as you probably know one of the famous fan comments about this whole scene is that the machete is backwards yeah goes across my throat and I don't know why I mean maybe for protection or maybe it was just a mistake you know it wasn't a sharp machete but uh, perhaps it was a mistake um, and when I was told as soon as the the blade hit me just to lean back and that would open it up and the blood would start pumping and when it started pumping it just started coming and the sensors cut it very quickly yeah in reality, and I've seen the other footage, I mean, the blood just keeps coming and coming and it started getting into my eyes. And, and that's when they actually, you know, yelled cut. Well, thank but, God uh, you got it in one take. But the, I, the yeah. fact that they they used a real machete. I believe it was, I mean, you know, with a dull side to it. You know, maybe yeah. it was just, you know, maybe it was a prop. Uh, it looked real to me and I'm the one <laughs> that's dealing now, with it. Now, the, the person whose hand was that, you know, I'm assuming they used some kind of a, a stunt per professional. Yes, they did. It was not the actual uh, person who portrayed the guy Jason. Jason. Okay. No, no, okay. There's no reason to. Um, but, but again, you know, it was pretty safe because it was upside down. Yeah. You know, reversed. So there was nothing sharp against my against my uh, my throat at any time it really but there's still a lot of tension because you know you're playing a death scene you're you're in the mode you know that well, first of all you don't know what's happening and someone grabs your throat grabs your neck your i'm sorry your hair and pulls it back and uh and then a blade comes in i remember my eyes kind of like look down as it watches the blade comes down to my throat so you know a lot of Hype, I mean, hyperness is going on with everybody on the set because it's, like I said, trying to get it in one take. I just love, and I assume you did get it on one take. We did. Great, yeah. great. Uh, I love hearing stories about how uh, special effects like that were done back in the days before CGI. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was such a, it still is. There's still, there still quite a few people out there that know the craft they know it well it's sort of becoming a dying breed but just the ingenuity that goes into like you said the pump and having somebody above the tree to pump the blood down right. uh what do you feel in comparison to you actually shooting scenes like that to today's cgi well i guess you know your process is still the same because you're still imagining you're in that situation as an actor and pretending and trying to, you know, pull on things that you can for, for horror effect, you know, for your own horror and shock. Um, 
but uh, it, you know, we, there's a lot that goes into the, the new work with, with CGI. Still, the actor is oh, yeah. so much about here's where you look. You look here, you look there, and you have to imagine so much. It's a very different process. Here, you actually feel it because it's happening. So that's where it's different for the actor's work, I guess. Um, but old fashioned is kind of cool. You it know? is cool. It is cool. It really and I, is. I read an article on Friday to our viewers basically that the, uh, the fans are really kind of split. Some of them prefer the CGI, but there's just as many that really love the old school, you know, special effect makeups, you know, yeah. people like Tom Savini and whatnot, right. who were masters of their craft. You, Dick, Dick Smith, uh, Dick Smith, was it? Who really started? Yeah, the, yeah. And then the you exercise. got like Rick Baker as well. I mean, real masters of their craft. Uh, now, you have appeared in quite a few horror films. Were you a fan of the genre or was it just the parts that you were getting? The latter. I mean, <laughs> I did. <laughs> I really had no connection, although I've always enjoyed horror movies. Yes. I mean, since I was a kid, I, I loved being scared in a dark movie theater. So, uh, but the latter, it was just, it was just coincidence that I started getting, you know, one and the other and the other. Did and, you, um, did you end up finding yourself, uh, you know, finding a new appreciation for horror after appearing in, in several of them? Well, I don't know if it was a new appreciation. As I said, I, I always enjoyed it, but um, it was fascinating and, and also very fulfilling to to go through the process and now not only watching on the screen, but being part of it and, yeah. and being shocked and horrified and, and scared and running from killers and, and, and robots in one and, and, and uh, various things. Um, it's one thing watching it on the screen. It was a very different thing, you know, living it. And yeah, so yeah. Now It was when, wonderful to have it firsthand. When did you actually see the final product of Friday the 13th Part 2? Was it at the premiere? Do you remember? It was. It was at the premiere, yeah. What did you think of the final product after everything was put together, edited, and you're like, whoa, this was pretty good? I liked it, um, and pretty much everything that I shot was in there, which I was happy about that. I mean, as actors, a lot of time, you know, we're, we're things we've done are cut out and on the editing room floor, and it's very frustrating. I remember doing a, um, a TV movie with, um, I forget her name, one of the stars of Dallas, and I played her lover in, in a bar scene, and the whole scene was cut out when the, when the movie came out because she never went to the bar. Yeah, they decided. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> and that once happened in a, a national Coke commercial during the Oscars. I had shot it with, oh, a, with the final shot, drinking the soda over the beach. And it was the last shot of the commercial. Never used it. They couldn't get the right coloring or the or the sunset proper. And I thought it was going to be on. I'm watching the Oscars. and watching that Coke commercial, and I wasn't on it. <laughs> but those things are frustrating. But um, but seeing yourself in the film uh, in this one, I, you know, they kept everything in and I was happy about that. And I think it's very good. You know, it it does scare. It keeps people interested. Oh, yeah. I think uh, the characters are well defined and um, and very different from each other. Um, and there's some I like there's humor, which is wonderful. Uh, it's just that the guy always dies, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's always the last girl standing. <laughs> now, what was it like? You said you were uh, where in Connecticut shooting. You said you didn't know any of your fellow castmates. How did you guys get along? Did you guys 
adhere pretty quickly, you know, get to know one another, have some fun on the set in between takes? What were the shooting conditions like? It was great. I mean, we're in an actual camp in Kent, Connecticut, which is a beautiful area, you know, and, you know, on the lake, just like you see in the movie. And, you know, we're all brought together for the first time and everyone was was pretty young and we'd all done other things, you know, smaller things. But there really wasn't anyone that had had like major, I don't think major, I want to say, well, not success, but notoriety. Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was a common bond with all of us. And we were all no one had any attitude, which was so refreshing for a set, you know, um, and some of them were very funny. Stu Charno, very funny guy. And he made us laugh all the time, uh, as did some of the others, Amy and John and Tom and uh, and Bill and Marta, uh, Lauren. I mean, all of them, we just we laughed a lot. We all were thrilled that we were doing this sequel and felt kind of blessed to be there, you know, together to share this experience. Now, by the time... Uh... You guys started shooting Friday the 13th Part 2. The first one, you know, like I said, it happened very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, it has become more popular as the years went on. It's just one of those films that has etched in itself in horror film history and will always be there. The original yeah. and the second and the third and the fourth. Um, how big, at the time that you guys were shooting the second... Did you know that the first one, how successful it was? Or was its success still ramping up when you were shooting the second? It was. I mean, we knew it was successful, hence the making of, of ours. They wouldn't have done it. Uh, and we knew, you know, the numbers were good for it and people, there was buzz about the first one still. But yes, it was still steamrolling. You're right. Mm -hmm. And uh, people were still excited about that. And then when it was released that a second one, ours was in production, um, we would see things, you would hear things in the news or from other people or, or the fans were, were getting excited about it. So it was terrific. But uh, we knew we were attached to something um, special, special. Yeah. I mean, who would know at that yeah. point what the franchise would become? I mean, it's 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 incredible. It's amazing. And it's it's a thrill to be part of it. Now, going on into like the third movie, which was really good as well did you as a fan enjoy watching where the we got the introduction from that burlap sack that he was wearing in your movie to the introduction to the infamous hockey mask that we get in the third one did you like the third one okay here's where i'm gonna embarrass myself <laughs> you didn't see it <laughs> you didn't see it <laughs> i have not seen i saw I saw parts of four only because they lifted my death scene and used it in four, <laughs> which I didn't even know until someone said one of the other cast members who also got his, his death lifted and put into four said, are you getting residuals for that? I said, what are you talking about? You know, actors, we want those residuals. Yeah. And he said, you're in part four. I said, no, I'm not. I said, yes. So I, I looked at it and I realized I was. So I called the Screen Actors Guild and I said, how come I'm not getting residuals? Uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll, you know, that's that's very odd, but I'm not sure. We'll look into it. And I kept calling them. They did nothing, nothing oh, to make it happen. God. So I called Paramount and I said, by the way, I'm in part four. And they said, prove it. <laughs> prove it? Uh, that's my face. You know my name, that's my face. In part four, you lifted my death scene from part two. 
And they said, you have to send us the time codes. Oh. I had to go out, get a copy of it, watch the time codes, take them and send that to them. And, and then they admitted I was in it. And then they sent that over to the Screen Actors Guild. And then I started getting residuals for part four. Sounds, it, was, it was bizarre. Sounds, sounds not, I, yeah, well, it sounds like pretty much Hollywood. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm still I, very grateful to Paramount. <laughs> <laughs> they they uh, did something wonderful for me. Yes. No, yeah, Paramount is just, it's, it's, it's an awesome studio. One of the oldest out there. Uh, what was it like working with Steve behind the camera? How was his directing style? Did it was it very just let sit back, let the actors do their thing, or was he very involved in the movements and everything else that comes with directing? He was he's really terrific with actors. He's very relaxed, never lost his temper. Um, he allowed us to make our choices, and like. All directors, he might modify them, change them, tweak them a little, which is great. And you appreciate that as an actor. So you do one scene this way and you get your note and you do it another. But uh, he knows what he's doing and he knows, you know, when you're giving your best performance, he knows what the best angle is to shoot it from. Um, he's technical, which is great. So he's not just one of those guys that, you know, move the light. I mean, where the DP is doing everything, which yeah. that is a job, of course, but... He, he knows things technically as well, but we, he made it fun. We, we would laugh and, and there were times we were silly in our, in our takes, you know, those just kind of let some goofiness out. Um, and he would laugh along with us. Uh, but I don't remember anything negative with Steve. Uh, just a good overall experience. It really was. He, he's, he's a, he's a generous guy, you know, show me what you got. And uh, and find, if it needs some fine tuning, I'll do it, and it worked great. That's awesome. Now, Scott, the character that you played in Friday the Thirteenth Part Two, was a uh, you know mischievous kind of not a bad guy. You know, you know had a thing with the ladies and all that. What yeah. are the similarities if you can if you can go back to the way you were back then? Of course, now, you know, people tell me, you know, if someone gave you the opportunity to go back and be 20 years old, I always say I will only do it if I take my 46 years of wisdom with me. Now, <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> now, uh, were there any similarities between Russell Todd and the character of Scott that you put into the character? Well, I think I'm a little de devilish. And so was Scott. I think I, I you know, I, I tried to bring that up a little more and kind of, you know, he's he's devilish. He's a little smarmy at times, you know. Um, I don't know. I'm not smarmy, but that part was the fun part to do. Um, but a little trickster. I mean, I like teasing. And I think that was was, you know, obviously what Scott did. Uh, so we're similar in that regard. Um, I guess also he's just he was kind of like fun and enjoy and it was playful yeah and i think uh that's probably me as well um but uh you know some people have said well he's he was a bit of a cad you know and yeah. and, and and all and and i said was that was that negative or was that was that a good thing with him i i i thought that you know that was that was kind of appealing because he kind of like disliked him but liked him at you know as well no he was uh, a very interesting character I mean, yeah. very interesting character. Now, you have done uh, soap operas as well. Yes. Uh, you were in Another World. Were there Agreed. any other soap operas you did? 
Uh, well, th Another World, I played the main character for three years, Dr. Jamie Frame, but um, Young and the Restless, which is here in L.A., yeah. um, one of the main actors, Don Diamant, ended up with meningitis in real life, so they called me in to replace him, and I didn't know how long it was going to be. You know, he thank God he survived and, yeah. um, and came back. I think I was there about six weeks, so it was one of the main characters, but, you know, instantly thrust into this, you know, replacing him, and he was, like, idolized by his fans, so... It was funny. Well, not at the time it wasn't, but now it is. I would go to CBS Studios, not far from here, and I would go into the stage door, and there were a lot of fans there when you come in and go out. And at first they didn't know who I was or what I was doing, but once my episode started playing, I would go and come out, and they'd go, we want Don back! We don't like you! We want Don! <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, okay, I'm just playing the part. You know, it's I'm not my fault. I'm just filling, keeping the seat I'm just warm. filling in. Yeah. Yeah. Clicking the time card and getting out. What is the uh, biggest difference? Because soap operas are daily. They're new episodes every yeah. day. I can't imagine what it's like to be on a set of a soap opera. It must be go, 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 go. One take, no more than two takes. Let's get it done. I mean, how would you yeah, describe it? Really it really is. It's, it's move, move, move. We have, you know, so many pages to do in one day. Um, it's a wonderful experience and training ground for an actor because you're literally there 50 weeks a year. You get two weeks off pretty much and you have to book them months and months and months in advance. You tell them when you want off so they could write it into the story. Wow. And you're, when I was doing Another World, I was living in New York City. We were shooting in Brooklyn. So up at 5 a.m., get ready. Uh, because we were in New York and shooting in Brooklyn, they provided a car service, which was wonderful to be sure we got there and we didn't rely on our own cars or public transportation. So the car would pick you up, you'd get there, you'd go into rehearsal like at 6.30, 7 o'clock perhaps. And depending on if you were first up or how many scenes you had that day, it would depend how long your rehearsal process is. Then go to the makeup and then do blocking on the stage and then shoot your shots. But it, your first scene could be nine in the morning and they may not need you again till two o'clock wow. uh, or they may need you just in the morning. So it varied. But the days were extraordinarily long most of the time because I was Dr. Jamie Frame. I was in the main family and, you know, sometimes it was five days a week. Um, and if it was a, an event such as a, you know, a holiday show we were shooting, which is always months and months in advance, we might be there to 2 a.m. Wow. to finish that one shot, one, one show. And we had to be back at seven so a lot of times we would just sleep over in our dressing rooms <sighs> so we wouldn't have to go home and get back so quickly but it, it's it's a it's a factory you're just you know every day all of these lines and on another world unlike many other shows we had to memorize every single line there were no cue cards no cue cards yeah so it was important that you really did that and at first it was very difficult to do but it's 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 training your mind and after the first six months it's amazing how quickly your mind adapts and and it's like a sponge and just takes in those words and i would look at the page and they started writing for you you know they knew you mm -hmm. and um we just suddenly just you know soak in and, and it was so much easier to to memorize and retain the lines we'd still you know screw up and flub on oh, the yeah. set and, and have some fun but um now it's, in, in uh, the, in, oh, sorry uh, but in the soap opera world, is it really you guys have to start and finish an episode every day? Or how many days are allotted to shoot one episode? It is one day. Wow. One day for an episode. But you may do pickups for two or three other episodes that 
needed from previous, or you may do some shots that are going to be thrown into a, a later episode. And that could be due to actor availability or sets or whatever, for many reasons, or just writing or changes that they want to do. But basically, you're doing an episode a day. It sounds like, like you said earlier, it sounds like the perfect training ground for an actor to get some wonderful experience. It is. The, I see one downside. At least there was only one, and at least for it was for me. I loved playing different characters. You know, I was a cowboy. I was a camp counselor. I, you know, I was an oceanographer. I, so many things with different actors, different shows, film, TV. And then you're the same person for three years or longer. And it's nice because you get comfortable with the character. But I always loved jumping around. And for me, yeah. it wasn't as interesting as playing all these other characters. And for that reason, after three years, um, you know, I, I had let them know that I probably wouldn't be continuing after three years. And I was the last Jamie Frame that actually just wrote him off. I ended up going to Paris for a, for a doctor's conference and never came back. <laughs> and that is really not uncommon. A lot of the actors that I have spoken to, they they when I give them this hypothetical choice, they want the freedom to go out and explore and do different characters. Yeah. Rather, I, the way I phrase it to them is, do would you want the job security on a show, let's say that it's going to go five or eight seasons? And to my surprise is, no, no. They, yeah, they, yeah, they want to go out and explore their craft doing different things. Is that how you feel? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a lot to be said for a steady income for five, six, seven, eight years or whatever. I mean, most people would yeah. jump at that opportunity and and it's wonderful. But there's something else. I think when you're an actor and most actors are creative that you want to use that creativity and, and explore different things. And um, there's nothing like getting a script and knowing you're a whole new character and uh, and being able to delve into that and explore it and express it and and and, and perform it. Um, but well, again, you know, most actors would kill for a chance to be on a soap opera for a while. My mom used to say all the time, don't leave, don't leave. <laughs> you know, how many actors in the, in the country are on a soap opera and you want to leave? <laughs> so, <laughs> you know? like you said, you've played all these different uh, characters, camp counselor, ocean, oceanographer. How do you, when you get a role and you book it, how do you start preparing for whatever that character is? Do you go out and research it? Uh, what's your process? Well, first of all, one or two reads of this entire script right away just to get the whole picture in. And then um, I look at the character and sometimes I will ask uh, the production for background mm -hmm. about that person. Um, I did an episode. Remember the show Riptide? Yes, I with, do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I forget the character's names, but, but my dad on that show, that's where I played the oceanographer. My dad, uh, was Cesar Romero. Now, how cool is that? Wow. Yeah. And, you know, that's another reason I enjoy, you know, doing when I was acting, playing these other, you know, wow. characters, you get to meet these amazing icons. So here I am with Cesar Romero. We play oceanographers involved in this murder going on. And See, wait, Cesar Romero, that was the Joker in the 1960s Batman, right? Sure was. Okay, just, oh, man, you're right. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry, go on. Very suave, debonair. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just on a side note, he used to, we would sit in our chairs waiting to go on, and I would say, Cesar, tell me stories. And he would say, what do you want to talk about? And I said, well, anything you have to say was probably 
you know, amazing to me. I, you know, it's like stuff I would read in textbooks, you know, I mean, history books about the industry. And he would tell me about um, playing tennis uh, at Pick Fair with Mary Pickford and Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> I mean, you, come on. What's better than that? Uh, and how they were, you know, distinguished gentlemen back then in their white tuxedos mm-hmm. and playing tennis in white and, and how, how my generation is all about torn jeans and, you know, the, the, you know, the class is, is gone. So that was fascinating. But uh, when I played that oceanographer, uh, I, I researched a little about, you know, oceanography, the, 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 the profession of it. Um, and we had to speak in Italian the entire episode, um, but they gave it to us phonetically so we could learn it. So I worked a lot on that as well. Um, that sounds but, really challenging. Yeah, it was. But, hey, you're with Cesar Romero. I'm doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and then I did another one. With, who was the rifleman? Uh, Chuck Connors. Wow. I played a, a champion skier with a film with Chuck Connors. And um, another icon, you know. And I thought, this is so cool. So, And I was a, uh, actually had won medals in giant slalom in Europe as a skier. And I was a, an excellent skier most of my uh, young life. And um, so then again, I knew, you know, I didn't have to do much, re- much research, research for that because I knew about the skiing and all. But uh, playing a doctor like Dr. Jamie Frame, um, we had a, uh, you know, a, a, an actual doctor on set that would help us and explain many things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would, you know, look into if I knew in a, in a script coming up there were medical because I was the head of the surgery for the hospital. I would have to perform surgery. I would look up certain things. And, you know, so I knew what I was talking about. I'm just instead of just saying it. No. So, you know, I think, you know, you take it, you, you look at the character you think what motivates him, what turns him on, what turns him off, um, his relationships with other people, why he's why he says what he says, why he does what he does. Uh, there's so many things you can look at with a character. Um, and then you make your choices. And then the director says, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes they say that and they say, yeah, use that. And so then they say, no, no, let's go a different way with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that's the terrific part of it. I mean, that process. Of, yeah, it's a whole creative process. It is creative. Exactly. You try what you think works from what you've put together and they adjust you accordingly. And, and the give and take is fantastic. So tell us about the Russell Todd agency. Never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> so when I came off uh, another world, um, like I said, it was, you know, soap opera is a great job and the fans are great and, but it's a factory and I wanted to do something else. I thought for the rest of my years, I'm going to find something else. So I came back, um, from New York to LA and I went on an audition for a commercial and my good friend Kirk was running the camera there and I did my audition and he said, oh, well, I'm working at this agency now that represents below the line talent, you know, directors, DPs, production designers, costumers, editors, and they're looking for someone to assist the uh, TV department. And I thought, oh, wow, I just came off a soap opera. You know, that might be tough. I don't know. But I said, let me meet them. And I went into their offices in Pacific Palisades and there was this dynamic woman who had just bought the company. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I really liked her. And so they interviewed me and the head of the TV department, this woman who I would be working for was there too, but she really didn't want anyone there. She wanted to do her own thing. And so I was kind of like being pushed on her, maybe, you know, to lighten her load, but she didn't want that. But they liked me. I got the job and I'm there maybe two weeks and and I was answering phones at the front desk, you know, and, um, the guy walked in and he said, I'm a Steadicam operator. Do you guys represent Steadicam operators? And I'm thinking, hmm, I don't think they do, but let me, let me get back to you. So I researched and I found that no one represented Steadicam operators. So I said, you know what? I'm going to start the first division at an agency of Steadicam operators. So the, the company was called Smith Gosnell Nicholson, who really started below the line representation. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I found, I started calling around to Steadicam operators. I found 10 that wanted to be repped, put it together, and I started getting them work. And while I was still assisting, you know, the head of the TV department, whatever she needed, and suddenly it started growing and they were getting a lot of work. And I started, I brought it on another five and they were getting work. And soon this division was becoming a, a lucrative division to the agency. So, you know, they're very happy. And then the head of the TV department left, <laughs> excuse me. And they wanted me now head the TV department as well as run the Steadicam department that I created. So I said, I don't know how to do it all, but uh, I said, let me try it. And, and I did. So I had all these incredibly well-known directors of photography. That, that, that was really exciting to me to be representing them for TV because uh, I loved their, their TV and film work. Um, but while I was doing that, I was building the Steadicam division as well, because kind of that's where my heart was. It was my baby. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got up to about 15 people, and I stayed there about a year and a half. And I decided, you know, if I can do it here, I can do it at home with myself. So I, um, I gave them notice, and um, I brought all the clients who wanted to come with me, just the Steadicam guys mm-hmm. and girls. Mm-hmm. And um, I started the division out of my house at the beginning. And uh, it grew to about 50 clients. Uh, and, you know, 21 years later, <laughs> it's, uh, it's been quite amazing. You know, it's something I love what I do. I, I've it's, always loved it. I love that, that you're offering, that you started offering representation to people behind the camera that needed representation. Yeah. Uh, what... Is it still Steadicam people? Who is your, like you would call now after 20 years, your biggest client base? What do they do? All Steadicam. All Steadicam. So you stuck to that original. uh... Yeah, because it's a terrific niche. No one else has done. Now now there's a woman that has five or six and some other people have tried to do it, but I believe unsuccessfully. But my agency is known when someone needs a Steadicam operator at any studio, any network, any music video, documentary, commercial, they usually, hopefully, call my company. And if not, they're probably calling one of my clients who then calls me and says, get in touch with so-and-so. But, and I have people contacting me all the time that want me to rep them. Uh, but, you know, I can't, I have to have some sort of, you know. Limit, limit. Yes, limit. So. Uh, like a boutique uh, agency is generally considered under 100. Do you have under 100? Clients? Yeah, I'm still just about 50, and I've okay. always kept it right there, you know, which is manageable. Yes. And um, it's just enough people where, yeah, and I would say at any given point, 90% of them are working at any, which is fantastic. Yes. Um, 
but calls come in and that person's not working, if that person's working that they're asking for. So I have the ability to farm that out to all the others that are available. So it's a great kind of one-stop shopping for people. Explain to our viewers who don't know what a Steadicam operator is. A Steadicam is an apparatus that they wear. It's, it's almost like they have, they have a vest, mm -hmm. uh, like this hydraulic arm, and the camera is going out here. And the arm, you know, has this ability to go up and down. And, and down below the post, there's, there's an arm with a post. And the bottom of the post is their monitor so they can see what they're actually uh, shooting. Um, and quite often they're being like, like, let's say two people are walking towards you. Uh, he's, he's walking backward. They're in front of him and there's someone pulling him and there's someone else adjusting focus remotely. So he doesn't have to worry about the focus, uh, but it's used. Um, and the and reason it's called Steadicam because that guy can run, he can walk, he can move, you know, at strange angles. Yeah. You see no motion if it's done well. Um, so, and, and. There's some, yeah, mo I mean, most of them are very, very, very good at it. And you would not know it. And, and um, it's an incredible skill and talent. And many of them begin as regular operators. Uh, but it's... Um, it sounds like a position that throughout the years, there's still a need, big need for it. And it's not going away anytime soon because of technology. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I hope not. Not yeah. yet. <laughs> but things, other things have come in, like the Movi, which is this little compact thing that you hold, and and you know, and now drones come in that can do a, sh you know, can be down here at eye line, take a shot, you know, and even turn and then fly up as you ride off on a horse or whatever. So there are other, you know, toys in in their bag of tricks that they can use. But Steadicam is still, it's used in, I won't say every, but almost every, you know, TV show. We have so many TV oh, yeah. series. You know, and features nonstop. You, and a lot of times, the kind of the signature move that people can recognize a Steadicam is when you see two people talking and the camera's going around them. Mm -hmm. You know, that is a Steadicam shot, most likely. Um, but it's used in everything, thank God. And, um, and a great bunch of uh, guys and, and girls that do it. Um, a lot of fun to work with them. And they're, and they're very jazzed about what they do. I bet. It sounds like a lot of fun. How did you uh, feel about the transition from acting to become to becoming a representative? I loved it. Uh, you know, I, I don't think I would have wanted to become an agent for actors. But, and one of the things um, I didn't you know, talk about, but I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't expecting to do this either. I, like I explained, I kind of fell into it, you know, because I just thought I would, you know, learn to be an agent at this company and, and, and rep, you know, these, this below the line talent. Um, but Going back to the soap opera, as I said, it's a factory. It kind of, it didn't kill my love of acting, and it shouldn't because it's a great gig, but it changed how I felt about acting. And uh, because of the factory, it took some of my joy away mm -hmm. of performing. Um, not that I wouldn't do it again if, if I was asked to, uh, you know, to act again. Um, but I wanted to find something else that would carry me through the rest of my life. And... Um, and that I would also enjoy. And I had no idea how much I truly would enjoy it until I was, you know, well into it. And it kind of really inspired me and, and, and excited me. I love when, even to the, today, I love when I have two phone lines in my office where they're both ringing and my cell phone is being texted by a client or production and I'm getting emails and, it's all, you know, and I, what do I do next? And it, 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 instead of getting crazed, it's like, yeah, this is, this is this great. This is cool. This is exciting. Uh, yeah. Going back to the movie uh, for a little bit, you were also 
I would call Chopping Mall. It has gained a uh, almost a cult following. Definitely, it's a cult it re- following. It really has. How yeah. did you get involved with Chopping Mall? That one, I believe that Jim Wynorski, the director, saw me in, I think it was Friday the 13th. Um, I'm trying to think what else he might have seen. I think it was that, and he called me in. Mm-hmm. And uh, I read for that part, and they, they just thought I was right for character was Rick. And they thought I was right, and I, I got it right away. Um, you know, it was a Roger Corman produced mm-hmm. movie. His wife, actually. Julie. Uh, it was Julie, exactly. Yeah. Produced it. Um, and, you know, when I read the script and here we are, you know, fighting robots that have gone awry and a muck in a, in a shopping mall all night. And it literally was the main shopping mall down here in San Fernando Valley that used to be called the Galleria. And it was very famous from a couple other movies, I think. Um, but it was, you know, an action picture. We were going to be action heroes and, and, and breaking th- into the stores and uh, in the mall and, and causing havoc and, and trying to you know survive the night and it just you know it was like a fantasy you know <laughs> for an actor it was, it, I thought this would be great and oh. jim is a terrific guy and steve mitchell too the writer um so it was a, you know it was a pleasure to to meet them and, and 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 work with them on this now i'm sure when you guys were filming it you had no idea that so many years later the thing this movie would have developed a, uh, no, a cult following no, you never, you really never know when mm-hmm. you're working project, but this has really gone crazy. I mean, even, I think it was, well, just before COVID, there was another screening in Hollywood yeah. and so many years later, and we were there, we did questions and answers sold out. The fans were wild, you know, they all wanted their pictures and autographs, which was great. And, and they, the questions they ask are they're, they're just so connected to it. And it truly has become a, a, a cult movie. And you just you wouldn't know when you're doing it. You're just having a blast running around trying to survive the night. Now, after the success of Friday the 13th, then, of course, Chopping Mall, and even in between, I believe Chopping Mall came out in 86, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, did you do, like, a lot of uh, conventions? There were not nearly as many conventions then as there are now. But did right. you go to a lot of public appearances, like conventions? I did very few. Um, only for the reason that I thought that if I only appear rarely, it would be more exciting for the yeah. fans and and for the actor, perhaps more financially, <laughs> better. <laughs> but uh, and I've got one. I'll be doing one um, in November. Actually, um, they're starting up again. Yeah. But. It's a it's a wild experience. I mean, the amount of fans that attend those and the other s- actors that you see that, are, you know, you, I wouldn't even expect you know, to show up that how are you doing this? I mean, aren't you busy working on something? I mean, real big celebrity stars that are doing it, but they're there to meet the fans and make the money, too. Um, it's it's really an experience that you have to have the, to uh, understand the whole industry maybe you know, know. And yeah and this industry is a lot smaller than people think it's like everybody yeah. knows you know everybody in a way uh in your entire career did you come up uh meeting someone where you were legitimately starstruck i know you said cesar romero is yeah. there anybody yeah. else that you were like wow you know you have to yeah. work with them you have to put that aside but you were really honored to be working with them. 
Yeah, Glenn Ford, another icon Ooh. from Westerns. We did a Western together um, called Law and Rendado, um, also known as Border Shootout. I think it was released under Border Shootout. And it was we shot it in old Tucson before uh, that Western set burned down, but I think mm-hmm. they've rebuilt it. But here's this guy, you know, he's walking on the set and he's like, oh my God, you know, someone you've seen in films for years and, you know, you grew up watching and um, he's a legend. And it was exciting to be there just even watching him work, uh, you know, alone. I would just stand off to the side and, and watch him and listen to him. And and that his voice is so recognizable. And uh, it was it was a thrill with him. Um, who else? Um well, like I said, the Rifleman, it was also great. Uh, but, you know, through my life, I've been very lucky. I started as a model in New York many years ago. So I had the opportunity to meet many, many, many well-known celebrities from all walks of life, you know, from all uh, fields. And so I was exposed to that and I knew how to to be around them without yeah. being too nutty or, or gawky or, or whatever. Although occasionally I would ask for an autograph, too. When <laughs> I, and stop myself. Now, film production is a very popular major in college. I'm not talking about actors. This is not about acting. Uh, behind the scenes, uh, script writers, directors, mm-hmm. producers. Producers do a little bit of everything. So, right. camera operators. Uh, for you know, young adults who are who want to break into this industry. What is the one piece of advice that you would give them to get their foot into the door? Well, of course, it depends what they want to do in the industry. I mean, if you want to be an actor, then by all means, start taking classes. Start taking workshops where you go and they bring in casting directors and agents to look at the new talent. That's a great place to be discovered. So it's very important as an actor to to hone your craft, attend classes, especially um, workshops. Yeah. If you want to be in filmmaking, then, I mean, it depends what age you are, but like I, I went to Syracuse University and I was in their film program. Um, but I didn't realize when I first went to Syracuse that the head of the film department was more interested in kind of ex- experimental film. Yeah. And I was like, Hollywood, you know, I want to be the next Steven Spielberg. <laughs> um, and they said, get out of here, go to L.A. And so you know what I did? I went to L.A. And um, and and then you know got involved in in the business, but uh, if you there are also places like the New York Film Academy, you know there are film schools all around the country oh, that yeah. you can if you want to learn all aspects of production, which I think is great. Even if you want to be a cameraman, learn the other things so you're you know well developed in you know and, and and knowledgeable about all the aspects of what goes into into filmmaking. Um, I would think like a PA, you know, if you're offered a job as a production assistant, just to be on the set and observe. Totally. It's invaluable. Not only will you observe and you'll, you'll just, you'll be like a sponge taking in everything that's going on, but you might make some terrific contacts. When I, when I, um, was still in New York, I had written Verna Fields. Did you know, Verna, she won the Academy Award for editing Jaws. Mm. And she was at Universal and I wrote her a letter comparing myself because I was making home Super 8 movies at home and uh, and I wanted to be a film director. I compared myself to Steven Spielberg and I said, you know, and I know you edited his movie, blah, blah, blah. And I'd love to meet you. 
and I'd love to come to Hollywood and be a director. She writes back to me. She goes, I was so impressed with your letter. Um, I'd love to meet you. I'm coming to your college. Um, wow. And so I got her to come to college and I was like, you know, the head of the, of the college, like, oh my God, you brought Verna Fields there. And she gave me a job as a tour guide at Universal for the summer. So I went back out that summer. But the key was she gave me, unlike any other tour guide, access to all the sound stages yeah. on the lower lot. And that gave me the ability to go in and observe and watch and meet people. And, and this is a business which is so much about relationships. You know, even with my clients that say, you know, you know, I'm having trouble, you know, it's been a little slow. I'll say, are you reaching out to other directors of photography, assistants, unit production managers, production people? You know, send your resume, contact them, tell them you love their work mm -hmm. and send them your resume in real. And, you know, it only takes one. You might have to send out 500, but even if one connects you, who knows where that'll lead. Exactly. And so being a PA is, is a very valuable thing. Anytime you can get on a set. Uh, I think it's valuable. Absolutely. Now, growing up, you said you've done some modeling. Of course, you've done some uh, acting. You have done a lot of different stuff in the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. But when you were, let's say, back in high school and, you know, you're asked that question, what do you want to be when you grow up? What were your aspirations back then? Uh, was it acting? It was acting and, and directing. Yeah. Yeah. I, in fact, I mentioned John Cagliano, who won the Academy Award. We went to high school together, and he would make me up. Uh, he, he would do foam prosthetics on me then. Here we are in high school. And he would make me up like Planet of the Apes, exactly. And I'd go around the school, or I'd go around to a, and go to a party at night, if it was Halloween, in that, in that costume. And he, once in the high school cafeteria, he put up, um, no, not on my neck, but he put squibs, you know, the electrical charges. Mm -hmm. uh, over my torso and I came into the and of course there was a wire going through my leg to a to him who had a, the thing that's detonated them and I walked into the cafeteria and he set them off and people saw the blood come out I <laughs> pretended that I was shot and fell down the cafeteria I had to go home early that day <laughs> <laughs> said the principal but uh, we played around and did that kind of stuff when we were young and I always wanted to be in that business and I think I when I was like 10 or 11 I was I put a map on the floor in my kitchen and I had a little two plastic cars and I put one in California and one in New York and I did stop motion animation and I had them come together. And when they hit each other, I, I you know, the next thing I poured kerosene on them and I lit it and they exploded as they hit each other. And I was doing things like that. And I just, I don't know, my, you know, my mom was a singer. She was in a trio called the Darlin sisters. So the art definitely women. is in the family. Yeah, so I think maybe that, and they always exposed myself and my brothers to to theater and movies when we were young, and I don't know, there was something magical about it to me, and I didn't know at really young where I would end up. My dad was in paint manufacturing and, and building materials, so I knew it didn't interest me, and he asked myself and my brothers if we were in, wanted to get involved, and said, no, no, yeah. but somehow... You know, I just got more and more interested in, in, in entertainment and wanted to be part of that industry. Well, that is amazing. And the success that you've had, I mean, that's a real feel-good story right there. We're almost out of time. I do want to ask you one final question. You have had the opportunity to work with several different directors. Is there any director that comes to mind for you that, uh, while working for them? Because you said you had aspirations of directing yourself. 
somebody mm-hmm. that really struck you that hey i, I want to learn how this guy does it i really like his style does any director stand out for you that you've worked, that I've worked with? with what um i really like working with jim winorski jim is a great guy uh he's funny and he gets actors and he gets shtick and he gets horror and he gets action and you know so i i was you know i admired him uh, for that and we're still friends today um but when i was doing all of the acting i had i didn't think that at that point that i would go back in you know or I never did it but I, that i would go toward the director uh, role i've kind of thought that you know my role is as an actor and i'm, I'm enjoying it uh, and this is where where I'll, where i'll stay so um i didn't like you know Hey Jim, help me out here. Give me a, you know, how can I be a director? That's awesome. Russell, thank you so much for being on thank here with you. us. Thank you. I just tonight. want to say one last thing that, Absolutely. you know, I want to thank fans not only of Friday the 13th, but you know, all of the horror things I've done and all the other things because you've just been amazing. Mm-hmm. And even to today, so many years after some of these projects, you reach out, you write, you you say hello on the street if I see you. At the conventions, you're incredible. And the fans make it, and I'm very grateful for them and uh, really appreciate it. Absolutely. And it's been an honor to talk to you. Uh, you too. This hour just flew by. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you so much for tuning thank in. Uh, stay safe. Uh, Russell, thank you so much again for being on our show. Till tomorrow night, guys, please stay safe. And on behalf of uh, Russell and myself, always stay walking. Good night. Yep. Bye-bye.